Today's scripture reading is from Acts 12, verses 1 through 11, and then verses 18 through 24. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the backside of your message notes or beginning on page 788 in your worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought it was a vi- he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now when, that day, when the day came, there were no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea, Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and he came to them with one accord, and having pursued Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on appointed day, Herod put out his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god is not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of God. Thank you, Cheryl. If this is your first time among us, you might not realize this, but what we do every week is we just take the Scriptures and we take the next section of it and we talk about it and try to understand what it meant back then and what it means for us today. So about May or so of this year, we began to study this book called the Book of Acts in the Bible. It's a very large book in the New Testament. In fact, it's uh, basically the largest or second largest book in the New Testament, and it comprises about 12% of the whole New Testament. And we've been studying, we're about halfway through it now. We're now in the 12th chapter. You heard Cheryl read for you a, substan- a substantial portion of that, of that chapter. And uh, you may have heard parts of it or, or, or remembered hearing parts of it before. Now, when most preachers look at this chapter, most of the times people talk about this chapter, they talk about the importance of prayer, how that the people prayed when Peter was put into jail and that uh, God released him out of jail and then they were faithless and didn't realize it was really Peter and, they, uh, and God answered their prayer anyway. Well, that's a good sermon. Maybe, maybe we'll do that sometime, but that's not the message I'm going to preach today because I don't think that that is its main thrust. 
My task each week is to try to help you see what it was that God was trying to say in the first century to those people that day, and then also by implication and application, what that means for us today. And what I think Luke is really talking about here, in addition to what has already been said about prayer, Lucas, Luke wants us to see the impotence of the kingdoms of man in contrast to the power of the kingdom of God. We have this curious story about Herod, who's trying to win favor with the Jewish people, and he kills James, one of the 12, disciples, 12 apostles. He kills him, and it pleases the people, so he puts Peter into jail, intending to execute him as well. We see Herod, the appointed king of Israel by the power of Rome, exercising his authority over there. And in the middle of that, what do you see? But Peter escaping miraculously out of that. Even though the kingdoms of man have power and influence and authority, they don't have power greater than the kingdom of God. And right on the heels of that, we have this curious story, which has no purpose to be in the Bible, except that God wanted us to know that Herod, right after Peter escapes and goes off and hides, we see that Herod then goes to Caesarea because he's having some conflict in the kingdom, and he's going, uh, and, and the people from Tyre and Sidon come down to him, and Herod dresses in his glorious regalia and delivers a wonderful oration, and probably simply to pacify him, the people say, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And the Bible tells us that because Herod received that as if it was true and didn't rebuke them for calling him a God, he was trying to follow the ways of Rome where Caesar was thought to be a God or the son of a God. What happened is that he was immediately, uh, uh, the Bible says he was immediately struck sick and worms ate up his body. <laughs> That's an interesting thing. Why is that there? Except that Luke, as he's crafted this story, wants us to see the contrast between the power of the kingdoms of this world and the power of the kingdom of God. So I believe that this is a passage which gives us some clues about the relationships between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of God. So I'm a week late. I'm going to tell you how to vote. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk to you about some principles about how God works in and through and despite the kingdoms of this world and accomplishes His purpose in the midst of them. And I'm going to leave a lot of open-ended questions for you to think through as you think what this might mean for you as a human being, as a citizen of this state and of this country, and as a citizen, as we often forget, of this world. What does it mean? See, they're very difficult and problematic ideas. How is the church to relate to the state? Are we to renounce it altogether, as did the monastic movements throughout centuries and even today, just renounce it altogether and live in our own little uh, huddle, circle of the wagon, so to speak, and let the world go wherever it goes, and we'll just call a few into our little huddle and not pay attention? Or are we to, not to re renounce the world, but rather are we, seek, are we supposed to seek to rule the world, as did the church throughout the Middle Ages? Are we supposed to have an established religion? After all, doesn't the, the book of Revelation say in 11.15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Are we meant to renounce the world altogether, or are we meant to rule it and get all of our policies in charge so that God can honor us because that's the way God's planning to do it? Or as has been a common point of view since the Enlightenment, 
which among other things gave birth to our country, are we to uh, uh, separate the state and the church altogether and keep our religious views personal and private? And is religion simply an interior thing that I do and has no public implications or ramifications? These are difficult questions, and they don't have simple, simplistic answers. Many Christians never think deeply about things. They simply take whatever is their natural economic or ethnic point of view and put God's blessing over top of it. The truth is, the Word of God should make us feel a little bit uncomfortable as we relate to our culture. These are difficult questions. We will need to navigate this prayerfully and in obedience to Scripture. And as I said, now that I've set you up this way, I'm going to either make you disappointed or relieved. I'm not going to deal with the specifics, nuts and bolts about all of this, but I want you to see how Luke is describing the contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. So we're going to take a look at this text under three headings. I hope you have your thinking caps on a little bit today because I think it's important to think through these things. We're going to look at it under three headings. Number one, Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom of God. Number two, Herod and the politics of the kingdoms of man. And number three, Peter and the witness of the kingdom people. Let's take, first of all, Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, what I want to do here is take a wide look at the whole book. I, I know I'm sorry if this is your first time, but maybe this is a good time for you to see this whole book. I want to take a look at this, uh, the, the whole book as Luke is describing it. How does the book of Acts begin? The book of Acts begins with Jesus ascending before the disciples. Listen to what it says uh, uh, as, as the book of Acts begins. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up. For after He had, com after he had commit given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen, He presented Himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Remember that. And while He was staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, with which He said, You have heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they, also, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him from their sight." This is the story of Jesus' ascension. The book of Acts begins with Luke saying, I've told you about what Jesus began to do from the time he was raised from, uh, came on this earth until he was raised from the dead, and then he ascended. Now, when you and I think of ascension, ascension, we sometimes think, well, he just went up into the sky somewhere. But that's not what it would have meant in that day or even today. The word ascension speaks about when someone ascends to the throne. When Elizabeth ascended to the throne. Ascension is not about going away somewhere, far away, only to return someday. Ascension is about moving to the place of authority. See, from the biblical point of view, heaven is the control room, the rightful control room for the places of this earth. Jesus came to take, took, take charge of the earth. You know, if you were, uh, and the one who is in heaven rules the earth. And one of the fastest religions of that day was the Roman imperial cult. 
where when after uh, 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 Julius Caesar died, it was believed that someone saw his spirit going up and he became the son of God. That's why we began to speak, they began to speak of the Roman rulers as the son of the divine, the son of God, the son of the imperial divine, and how Augustus had determined that Caesar was divine and that Augustus himself became the son of God. So when Luke is telling us that Jesus ascended, he's letting them know quite clearly that Jesus, the crucified, resurrected, risen Christ, has now moved to take charge of this world. So they ask him, will you restore the kingdom now? Jesus doesn't say no, but instead he redefines it. He says, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. We say about our church, we're called to be living witnesses of God's new creation in Christ Jesus. Witnesses to what? Yes, they were witnesses to the resurrection, but even more than that, they were witnesses to the fact that the resurrection confirmed that Jesus was Israel's Messiah, that Jesus is the Lord of the world, and they were witnesses to that effect. Resurrection meant the kingdom had been inaugurated, that's ascension, and that a new kingdom had begun, that a new age had started, that new creation had broken in, so that Jesus was Israel's true king. Jesus was Israel's true Lord. So the two things we need to see about Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom of God is that the first half of the book lets us know that Jesus is Israel's true Messiah, or true king. Jesus is Israel's true Messiah. This is the main theme of these first 12 chapters. The chapter, we're in the 12th chapter right now as we close out that section. Luke wants them to see that Jesus is Israel's Messiah despite the fact he was crucified. God raised him from the dead, and he is the true Messiah, the true king, David's greater son. You can read the first 12 chapters, and you'll see that. What is it that happens when this occurs? Well, the chief priests are furious that the disciples are proclaiming in chapter 4 and verse 2, in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because it suggests to the religious leaders that Jesus is in charge, not them, that Jesus is the true Messiah. And we see them unable to stop the witness of the apostles. The apostles said, judge for yourselves whether or not we ought to obey God or man. We cannot but declare what we have seen and heard. And they went on to proclaim the good news about Jesus. You see, because Jesus is Israel's Messiah, the temple is no longer the only place where God can meet His people. God's Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. New creation is springing up outside the confines of the temple. You don't have to go to the temple to meet God. God meets you where you are through Jesus and His Spirit. This is why Stephen in the sixth chapter was, skilled, was killed and the church was scattered. But the Bible says immediately following that story, the Word of God continued to spread. The religious, the Jewish people tried to stamp out this faith. They persecuted it, and when they spread it, it was just like spreading seed. It went to go everywhere. You see, because uh, uh, the Word of God continued to spread, and that is what brings us ultimately to today's texts. When Herod, who is an imposter king, appointed by the Roman government, seeks to stamp out this renegade movement. For the first time, Rome is beginning to now officially try to persecute this church before that it was the Jewish leaders, not the Roman officials. Herod is an imposter king, but as we see in this story, he is overthrown, and yet the good news about Jesus, the true king, the true Messiah, flourishes. 
In a moment, we'll look at that story more carefully. But before we do, let's look peek towards the, the next horizon as the book moves forward in chapters 13 through 28. And here we see that the gospel floods outside the Jewish boundaries, and we begin to see that not only is Jesus the Israel's true Messiah, but Jesus is also the world's true Lord. Jesus is Lord. Did not just mean accept Jesus in your heart and He'll be the Lord of your own heart. You, it meant that. But it didn't just mean that. It meant that Jesus, not Caesar, was Lord. That Jesus, the crucified one, he was the one who was really in charge of things in this world. Hints of the expansion of the church are already been seen in the conversion of Cornelius a chapter or two ago, in the planting of a Gentile church in Antioch. But now that trickle becomes a flood as Jesus is proclaimed, not merely as Israel's true Messiah, but also as the world's true Lord. Soon, starting with the 13th chapter, the apostle Paul will be sent on a mission to announce to the world that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He goes to Turkey and Greece, proclaiming the goodness of creation, but also denouncing them for their idolatry. Jesus, he says, is the true king of the, of the world. Soon he goes into Philippi, into, the Greece, into, into Macedonia, into Greece, and he is thrown into jail while he's in Philippi not for spiritual reasons, but for economic reasons. He had healed a slave girl and cost her owners sizable income by that healing, and so he was thrown into a Roman prison. The gospel had had economic implications in the way that people live their lives, and not everybody liked it. But what happened while he was in prison in Rome? His citizenship was discovered, and he extracted a public apology from the Roman magistrates. They escorted him out of town after they discovered that they had taken him illegally, beaten him uh, illegally, and he said, no, you can go. And he says, no, you're going to escort me out. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, through weakness, conquers the power of the state. That's the theme all the way through. In the very next city, he goes into Thessalonica, is the way I say it, there he encountered more opposition in Acts 17 with the accusation charged against him in the seventh verse. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. They weren't mistaken. The true king of the world is Jesus. Jesus, not Caesar, is the world's true king. If there were time, we could follow the same theme into Ephesus where he goes next, where the good news about Jesus shakes the economic foundations of this city. But let's hasten toward the end of the book. We find Paul in the 28th chapter under house arrest in, of all places, Rome itself. Here he is right under the nose of, East, of Caesar, right in the power hub of the whole world, in the middle of the most powerful city in the world. And what does the Bible say to us he is doing? It ends with these words in the 28th chapter. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What's the implication here? Luke is trying to help us see that Jesus is the king not just of Israel, but the king of the 
whole world and the message about the lordship of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Lord, Jesus the Messiah. That's what Lord Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the word for Messiah. The King Jesus, the Messiah, with boldness and without hindrance. The book of Acts ends with the statement that nothing's stopping it. And so we have seen in the course of the 20 or so years of this book that it covers, we have seen how the church has moved even despite opposition because Jesus is the world's true king. So then let's come back in here to this 12th chapter and see what we learn about Herod, secondly, and the politics of the kingdom of man. Herod and the politics of the kingdom of man. By now, having taken this overview, this view which starts with Jesus ascending to his throne on a hill outside Jerusalem, and then Paul taking the message of the gospel into the very throne room area of, of Rome and preaching without hindrance, we ought to know that Luke is going to tell us something about Herod that's significant. And so we re realize that Luke has his reasons for highlighting Herod. In fact, in this chapter, his name is used six times in the whole book. And it's an important summary or transitional chapter in the whole book of Acts. It closes out part one of this book, and 13 starts part two of this book. Because up until now, the church has been primarily centered in Jerusalem among Jews. Going forward, the activity of the church is almost exclusively among the Gentiles. Up until now, the most prominent person in the book is Peter, the apostle. After this episode, the most prominent person in the book is Paul. In fact, following this chapter, Peter is virtually invisible, aside from a brief reference to him in the 15th chapter. So clearly with this book, we end chapter part one and start part two. And what do we see in this chapter? Well, one commentator I looked at summarized this chapter this way. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphant. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the Word of God triumphing. See? That's what's happening in this chapter. So we're taking, hope you don't mind, we're taking sort of an overall look at this. Some people like this. Some people say, I can't handle it, but sorry. This helps us to see the big picture. God trying. So let's look at this under three headings about Herod. First of all, Herod's design. Herod's design. Herod wanted to win Jewish favor by executing Christian leaders. Now, who was Herod? When you read the New Testament, you can get awful confused because Herod's all over the place. There are at least three different Herods, maybe even four, talked about in the New Testament, and you don't always know which one's being talked about unless you study carefully. So this Herod was known as Herod Agrippa I. He had just been put in charge of this whole area. He had been given the official title of king. This Herod, the one in this story, is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was in charge when Jesus was born. So when Jesus was born, that was Herod's, this Herod's grandfather. He was the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was in charge when Jesus was put to death. Okay? Now, Herod's, this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, that's how we call him, Herod Agrippa I, his father was dead. And his father was dead because his grandfather had killed him. <laughs> but that's the way Herod the Great was. He was terrible. He killed everybody, uh, anybody. And so when he was killed, he was shuffled off to Rome. He grew up in, uh, into Rome by his mother. Uh, he shuffled off into Rome. And he was friends with Gaius, ultimately Claudius, emperor of Rome. And that's how he got made king later on. Anyway, so his grandfather was the one Herod when Jesus was born. His uncle was the one in charge when Jesus was killed 
and now he's been appointed uh, king of it. Uh, and, and he's also had the father of another Herod, Herod Agrippa, number two, before whom Paul makes his defense in Acts 25. So he's the official, the official king of the Jews now. Now, this Herod was eager to win the favor of the Jews, so he did a couple of things. One is he began to scrupulously obey the Jewish law. He was an Edomite. Some of you will know about Edomites a little bit. He was an Edomite, so he's kind of a half-brother, half-breed to the whole thing. He didn't really fit in the Jewish king's system, and he wanted to be uh, accepted by them, so he began to obey the Jewish laws. And so what he began to do, too, was he began to persecute Jewish Christians. And the Bible tells us right here, very abruptly, James was killed by the sword. That probably means that he was beheaded just like John the Baptist. James was killed by the sword. So right away we see that Herod is out to get the church. The, the, uh, the government is out to get the church here in this case. And it says to us in the second verse that this pleased the Jews, so he had arrested Peter too. Now, Peter had been in jail before, but this is very different. First of all, this is not the Roman Sanhedrin who's put him, excuse me, the Jewish Sanhedrin who's put him into jail, but it's the Roman king that's put him into jail. And he's already proven that he will kill anyone. So on the last night of Peter's life, he's in jail, and two things are happening. Peter is sleeping. He's not worried about it. And the church is praying. The church is praying for him. And so let's see, secondly, after Herod's design, secondly, Herod's defeat. In response to fervent prayer, Peter escapes death. Yeah. You can imagine how traumatic this was for the life of the church. James was an important leader, but, G but Peter was their key leader. He was their key leader. It was not just the threats of the Jewish leaders that were they were against. Now, this was the power, the raw power of the Roman Empire against them. And so they set themselves to fervent prayer while Peter sleeps the night before his trial. And so now it's the night before Peter's trial. He's asleep, and in, in the story you heard it read, an angel appeared to him and poked him in the side and said, Get up quickly. Luke describes in great detail his escape. His chains fell off. The angel said, put your cloak and sandals on. He bypassed the guards. The doors opened, and then the angel vanishes. And now for the first time, Peter, who thought he was dreaming, realizes he really is free. He had been rescued. Ironically, he was rescued. His brother in Christ, James, was not. Now to make a long, so what, what, what Peter does is he goes to one of the homes where the believers were gathered, the mother of John, Mark, and so to make a long story short, though the people are praying fervently for his deliverance, they don't believe Rhoda, the slave girl, the servant girl, when she announces he's here, finally they realize that Peter really is free. He speaks to them briefly and then goes into hiding. We hear very little about him in the whole rest of the book. What happens in the morning? In words very similar to those used by Herod's grandfather when Jesus escaped from Bethlehem, it says, Herod searched for him and did not find him. And he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Herod had been defeated. And then we find the final coda to the story as we consider thirdly Herod's demise. The defraudulent king was eaten by worms, but the word of God increased and multiplied. 
what I told you a little bit about already. He had gone up to Caesarea, and the people from Tyre and Sidon where it came, they, they needed to be on good terms. He gives this great speech, and uh, ironically or interestingly, this story is also described by another ancient Jewish historian named Josephus, and he describes it much the same way as, as Luke does as well. Although Le- Josephus tells us that he was seized during the middle of his speech, and he died within five days after that. Yeah. So we have this very, um, uh, very poignant statement that the king of the Roman Empire right there in Jerusalem cannot stop the expansion of the kingdom of God. Listen to what it says in verse 23 and 24. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Yes. And so let's close out by taking a look next at Peter and the witness of the kingdom people. Peter and the witness of the kingdom people. Sometimes what we do is we take principles like this and we assume that we are intended to use the weapons of this world to defeat the powers of this world. That we are supposed to take raw power and economic uh, uh, you know, influence and try to uh, change the world the same way that the world gets changed before us. But Jesus himself, when he discovered the disciples thinking that way in Mark chapter 10, we've not time to look at it, but in Mark chapter 10, we have this incredible story where Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. James and John, yes, this James, the one who had just been killed, come to Jesus in Mark 10, 35 to 45, and they say, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can one of us sit on your right and the other on your left? They're knowing that something's going on, and they think that somehow Jesus is going to be set up as a king there, and they won't have positions of power. Jesus says, you know, you, are you able to drink the cup that I can drink? And they said, yes, we can. Jesus said, you will drink that cup. And in fact, we just discovered that James did drink that cup. He died. And he said, you know, Jesus said, and he called the rest of them together. And he said, you know how it is among the Gentiles that their leaders lorded over them and exercised control. But he said, it is not to be so among you. For whoever wishes to be great among you, let him become least of all, and he would be the greatest. Let him become the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus then did was he walked into that cross. He submitted to the power of the Jewish and Roman government and conquered it by surrendering to it, by becoming a servant and finding in that resurrection life an altogether different way of doing business, an upside-down kingdom. That's what Jesus had done, and that's what basically happened there. Yeah, we have seen how both in this chapter and in the whole book of Acts, Luke wants us to see that the kingdoms of this world are no match for the kingdom of God. Now that Jesus is raised from the dead, there is a whole new world order. Jesus had already taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. And then following his resurrection, he said, All authority in heaven on earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, not just Jewish nations, all nations. And as Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, God's ultimate plan is that heaven and earth will be united in Christ. We're called to be living witnesses of God's new creation in Christ Jesus. But how are we to do that? Are we to seek to rule the world 
No. Jesus himself said that in the 10th chapter of Mark as we look at it. How do we bring witness to the kingdom of God in the midst of this world? Well, we don't have, I don't want to give you final answers to that question, but I want to give you some clues that I see here in this text. First of all, there is the witness of suffering. The witness of suffering. How was it that Jesus brought his kingdom to the world? He brought it through suffering. And don't we see here that this church, not only in this 12th chapter, but throughout the development of the church as it goes, it engages in suffering. It suffers on behalf of Jesus Christ. Suffering is one of the ways that we are able to uh, um, how do I say it? Um, receive and swallow up the violence of this world so that it loses its power. When we respond violently with violence, we just increase the circle of violence, don't we? That's why Jesus said, if someone hits you on the cheek, don't hit him back. Give him the other cheek. You see, violence loses as it is received. The witness of suffering in James was killed. And we know nothing about it except a sentence in Scripture. If I'm James in heaven, I'm thinking, come on, Lord. Look what I had to do. And you don't give me any more credit than that. He's the first disciple to be killed for his faith. Yes, we will sometimes engage and receive suffering and as we do, we know that that's what our master did. He suffered for us. And we must be willing to suffer. We live in a world not always impressed with the standards and the rules of our Christian faith, right? How do we respond to that? Well, one of the ways we sometimes have to respond is by suffering. Not being willing to do something which is against our conscience. Not being willing to uh, be involved in things which we know to be wrong and being willing to pay those consequences if we must. The witness of suffering. James wasn't the only one, but he's the best example in this story. The second thing that we see is the witness of obedience. The witness of obedience. Peter is all together through their responsive when the angel Lord comes to him and says, now do this, now this, go do that. He lives obediently. What we want to do is live in obedience to the principles found in Scripture as we live our lives. And we want to listen carefully to what the Scripture really does say. Ask ourselves questions which are difficult with regard to the Word of God, what it means for us. It's not going to be easy, but we need to be obedient. And the third witness is the witness of prayer. The witness of prayer. You know, when we engage in prayer, we are inviting the very Spirit of God to communicate in us and through us and to us for this world. When Jesus went out to do His ministry, He came out from prayer to do it. What did Jesus do the night before He was crucified? He spent the night in what? Prayer. Watch and pray, He said to His disciples, that ye not enter temptation. In the same way, we tend to live in the world and go back to prayer. What we ought to do is start in prayer and then go from there into the world. 
bringing our lives, our decisions, what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be a husband, a wife, an employee, an employer. What does that mean for me right here? How do I express the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life right here, right now, in what I am doing? These are not easy questions to answer. And yet, we know that someday heaven and earth will be brought together under the Lordship of Christ. We have the opportunity to anticipate that now as we live as resurrected people. You know, as we close our time today, we will remember the Lord's table. And we should do it with a reminder that this is the God whom we serve. We want to bring the kingdom of God to this earth? How do you recognize God? You recognize Him on a cross, giving His life for us. How do you recognize God on the earth today? You recognize it as the people of God lay down their lives for this world the same way that Jesus laid down His life for them. Let's have prayer as we close. Dear Jesus, it's so easy for us to have knee-jerk reactions to our culture and uh, not to bring them before the throne in prayer, in obedience, no matter what the cost, even willing to suffer if we must. Give us wisdom as husbands and wives and parents and children and citizens, employees and employers, and help us to be able to follow the same Jesus who gave His life for us and found at the other side of it new life. Some of us today probably need to surrender some things in our lives. We've clutched too tightly to the things of this world, our position, our possessions, our pleasures. We want to surrender those to you so that you can bring new life to us through it. Help us to declare with our lives that Jesus, not money, is Lord that Jesus, not pleasure, is Lord. That Jesus, not possessions, is Lord. That Jesus, not power, is Lord. That Jesus is Lord of all the earth. We affirm that today in Jesus' name. 